Good evening and welcome everyone to our class one of two of this course, the Jewish course of why. We are very, very excited about this course. There's so much to talk about in two weeks, two short weeks. I wanted to thank Lynn Coleman for coming up with the idea. Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> and let's get right into it. So this is the style. It's going to be a little bit of a different style class. It's a very informal, I like to call this a conversation. There's no, uh, you know, could I ask this question? Could I not ask this question? You know, it's all good. We're all game. It's, uh, it's, it's a nice discussion just to educate ourselves with some of the ideas, the beliefs, the history, the, the theology, um, the practices of Judaism. So any question that starts with why in Judaism or why do we do this or why don't we do that? Why do we believe in this? Why does it say this? Any why question is, 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 is fit for this class. So throughout the last few weeks when we started marketing the class, a few people sent in some of their questions and um, we're also going to open it. We're going to open up, we're going to ask you to unmute your, your, your mics and we're going to open it. I want to hear what you want to know about Judaism because there's no end to Judaism, right? Why in Judaism, we can study for years and years and years. So I obviously want to know what you are interested in knowing about Judaism. What, what are your questions? So I, I believe you saw our emails and um, I was not able to upload it here. I'm trying to see if I'm able to put it in the chat I don't think I'm able to, but um, if you have the email open to what the email that I sent out, and th those that are here, um, I have a, um, uh, a printout um, of the 50 questions, the 50 questions that, the, that, that was actually done through a survey. They surveyed 30,000 Jews, I think. They asked them, what are your top why questions in Judaism? And they came up with 50 top questions. What I'm going to do here, um, I figure, if I figure out how to use this computer, what I'm going to do is I am going to share my screen just momentarily. If you have the email with you or handy, you could open up the email, the email that you got the link from, and you could read through the 50 questions. And I want you to point out maybe two or three of, of these questions that you feel this is something that I may be interested in hearing an answer to. Some of you, again, already sent it in and, and I have those written down and we are going to address between tonight and next week, we're going to address those questions. But if you have any specific questions from these why questions, please um, let me know. I'd love to uh, have an opportunity to discuss these questions. So please open, uh, so, so if you have the email, please unmute yourself. I'd love to hear from you. I am going to, uh, I'm trying to pull it up on my computer so I can be able to uh, share the screen so uh, we can all read the questions together. But if you have that list in front of you, please share with us, if you'd like, some of those questions. Yes, Brian. Why do men and women sit separately in traditional synagogues? <clears throat> I got to... Uh, yeah. Why do men and women sit separately in the synagogue? What, what number question was that? Uh, I think it was 12. 12 or 13. Okay. 
I got that down. We will discuss that, God willing. Any other questions, Brian, that you have, either from the list or not from the list? Any other questions that you have that you think that maybe is appropriate that we discuss either tonight or next week? Or any other questions from the list? Does anyone else want to share a question or two that they'd like to discuss? I have another one from the list. I'm sorry? I have another one from the list. You have another question, um, Brian? Yeah, it's from the list. It's uh, why does the Bible call for animal sacrifices? You have to speak a little, say it again a little louder. Number 14. Why does the Bible call for animal sacrifices? Animal sacrifices. Okay. Someone, someone said that. Someone sent that question in already. So we will, we will, we have the mark down already. That's a great question. Yes. Anyone else want to share a question? Amy, do you want to share a question? Tom, Cece, Karen, Angela. You don't have to. If you, you know, we could just go through. How we, does we have enough questions? Being married. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, Cece. How 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 does being married to a non-Jew affect a Jew? Not on the list, so we'll definitely include that. <laughs> Can you go get that off the printer? I was thinking about number four. How does the marriage to a non-Jew affect a Jew? Okay, great question. It's a really good question. Yes, Amy. I thought number four was interesting. Why have the Jews survived millennia while so many other uh, civilizations have vanished? It's a great question. And, um, secret to and another thing. Okay, we have that down. Okay, can I ask one more? Please. Um, the eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth? versus what we think about today what's up with the eye for an eye what is that what's yes. up with that that works okay <laughs> it's a great question it's a really good question and any, anything else before we yes yeah, cc no okay any, any other questions okay so let's um growing yeah. up in a, a jewish family um, my grandmother always told me that I was a chosen one. Um, I, I, at that at that time, I guess uh, I thought that was kind of weird because why would I be chosen? And are, are the Jewish people still considered the chosen chosen people? You got to ask your mom. She's, she's gone. Uh, that's a great question. It's actually in here. Yeah, she on has the to list. ask her daughter. You ask your daughter. I have to ask you, Rabbi. You ask your daughter, and you ask you. got to ask your your, your grandchildren. You know, that's a great question. That's a great question. It's on the list, and um, we uh, we will discuss it. Yes, good question. Okay, so let's begin. Let's begin our discussion. And again, if, like I said, I like I like to I like this to be a conversation, a discussion. If you have any comments or questions, you want to add anything, please. Uh, we, I, we'd love to we'd love to have a dialogue. We'd love to, to to discuss this together. So let's let's begin. 
And I'm actually going to begin with a, a why question. You know, obviously, in Judaism, we always answer with a question. Someone once asked the rabbi, why do Jews always answer with a question? And he answered, why not? Right? So, <laughs> so we're always... <laughs> We're always questioning. We're always questioning. And the, and, and the why question that we're going to begin with is why ask why? In other words, and it's not just a, a play on words, but the question is, is this a proper Jewish approach to ask questions? Why are we even asking why questions? Should we not say, listen, God told us. This is what God wants of us, and we just do it without reason. Why do we need a reason for things in Judaism? Just accept it. Didn't the Jews accept the Torah? Did they say, we will do and we will hear? We're just going to do. We're just going to listen. We're not going to question God. I do understand. I don't understand. I agree with the reasoning. I don't agree with the reasoning. It makes no difference. We are accepting God's command because we understand that we are finite human beings. God is infinite and his wisdom is beyond our wisdom. Why even ask why? That's the question that we're going to start with. And I think the answer is that, yes, this is all true. This is all correct. We do have to have a blind faith. We do have to accept even if we do not understand. Yet at the same time, Judaism encourages questions. They encourage study, find out, explore. There are reasons, there are beautiful, beautiful ideas and beautiful reasons for things that we do. Not to say that if we don't understand, we won't practice, but once we have that foundation, of acceptance, now we should question, well, tell me why. Is there a reason? Perhaps there's a reason. And now when I have the reason, I am so much more excited to, to do. I'm excited with my religion. I'm more enthusiastic. I have, a more, I have a greater passion. There's a fire in my belly because I appreciate it. I understand it. I understand the reason for it. So not that we're questioning because we are ridiculing. We're questioning because, eh, anyways, it's not uh, something that I believe in. I, I can find questions about it. The question is a question of sincerity. I truly want to, want to know the answer. I remember as a, as, as a, as a young boy, or as a young teenager, I, I should say, I have a very good friend. I have a very good friend until today. And he was from Boston. And he told me that he was once sitting on a bus. From, we were in uh, Toronto, I guess, going to Boston. And he was sitting next to a Jewish student in, in BU. And they start talking about Judaism, religion. And the topic of kosher comes up. And the, the other students started asking, why do we keep kosher? Why this? Why that? And he says, you know, I had so many questions on kosher. I feel like kosher is, you know, the, the, the whole, it's really for a diet, for a healthy diet. And today there's so much kosher food that isn't, isn't really healthy for you. And therefore, no reason to keep kosher. And as they were talking, and my friend was explaining them the true reason for why we keep kosher, 
He says, you know what? I always knew that my, my question and my answer wasn't truly the real reason, but it was just an excuse for me. You know, I felt guilty not keeping kosher. So I felt, so I, I questioned it, right? So that's not a healthy question. If you're questioning it because you want to feel good because you're not uh, observant, you're not uh, involved in, in Judaism and therefore, eh, doesn't make sense anyways. Obviously, those, those questions are not kosher. But if we're questioning because we do want to know, find out more, we want to have more of an excitement and more of a passion towards Judaism than on the contrary. One of the more uh, observed holidays in Judaism is the holiday of Passover, Pesach. What is one of the main uh, factors of the Seder, the Seder night? Questions. We have the four questions, the man, ishtana, ha, that we all know those questions. We encourage our children to ask. We, we actually do certain things. One of the, you know, part of the steps of the Seder is, hey, we're going to do something out of the ordinary because we want you to ask. We, we educate our children. If you see something, ask. Tell me why. You might not get an answer. And obviously, we don't have answers to all questions. And, and even going through these questions that we're going to discuss tonight and tomorrow, we might not, the next week, we're not going to necessarily have all the answers. Sometimes the answer is because God said so. That may be the answer. That may be the answer. However, it's always healthy to ask why. And if we do receive good answers, that sufficient answers, it's only going to uh, encourage us and help us with our relationship with God. Question by Angela, yeah. Why don't we mention Moshe at Pesach? He's going to repeat it. Great question. Angela wants to add another question, and that is towards the end of the, of the on the list, I believe. Yeah. Why is Moshe's name, you just mentioned the Seder, and Moshe's name, for some reason, is omitted omitted from the actual story of the Haggadah, which seemingly he's like the, the, the center the main character in the movie, and he's not even mentioned in the Haggadah. Okay, so let's go through some of the other questions. Um, we'll go somewhat in order, and we have some other questions that people sent in as well. So we're going to, we're kind of going to go jump around different topics, different questions. For some questions, we're going to spend more time on and some questions we're going to just spend just a few minutes on those questions so the first question that we're going to discuss we're going to start with a question um on my page is five but i believe in the email is number six and that is why have the jews survived millennia while so many other civilizations have vanished what is the secret to Jewish continuity? There were so many other empires, so many different other religions and nations, ancient Rome, ancient uh, Greece, ancient, uh, you know, the Spanish Inquisition. There's, there are so many religions, Mesopotamians, I mean, going back to, to real ancient times, and we don't, we don't know of them. We don't know any other descendants. It's something for the history books. But Jews, we live on thousands of years. We have a rich history. We have history books. 
We know details of what happened, what, what people did, where people lived. We know names of people. And obviously, Ju- Judaism not just surviving, it's thriving. What's the secret? What's the secret? I want to read. I want to read a uh, a text. Uh, I'll read it out loud so you could so you could hear what I'm saying. This is a text from Mark Twain. Okay, concerning the Jews. Here it's like this: the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose filled the planet with sound and splendor. They faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burnt out and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew, the Jew saw them all and is now what he always was exhibiting no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All all things are mortal, but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? In the words of Mark Twain, what is the secret? What? Yes, please, Angela, what's 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 the answer? The Torah. Angela says the Torah. We had over here a, a, a program maybe three or four years ago, you know, on the holiday of Shavuot, which is a holiday usually in like in uh, June, right? Or, or May, June, when the, 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 the holiday uh, celebrating the, the receiving of the Torah on Mount Sinai seven weeks after the exodus of Egypt. So we always have an all night learning program with a dinner and we have different, different people speaking, people, different community members speaking. So one year, the topic, the main session was the secret to Jewish continuity. And there were like seven or eight speakers. Everyone kind of zeroed in something specific. The Torah in general, having, you know, the the, the idea of of having uh, children of family, children, large families, uh, Shabbat, Jewish education, um, study, prayer, you know, Jewish language. You know, there are so many answers. And, there, and obviously, that's all true. It's all true. They all play a very important part to Jewish continuity. And what's interesting is that, that um, in, in, as a nation, as a religion, there was no other, there is no other religion that was able to do the same as Judaism. Keep that religion and, and, and not just the same, but through all the persecution. What the Jewish people went through and are going through and went through throughout the generations, starting back in Egypt. Who thought that the Jewish people would leave Egypt? And then through all the persecution through the Greeks and the Romans in Israel going into exile. And then to all the persecution throughout the generations in Spain and in Europe, again, time and again. And we're still here. We're still here. So what do we say in the Haggadah? We're quoting the Haggadah a lot tonight. What do we say in the Haggadah? In every generation, the people of the generation stand up and they try to 
destroy us. They tried to devour us. They tried to get rid of us. But God is always protecting us. So ultimately, we could give many, many reasons. But I think the core, the essence, the, 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 the reason itself is because we have a shepherd who is protecting us. Let's answer your question. There's a shepherd that protects us, which means there was once a conversation. The Talmud, the Midrash talks about a conversation that Hadrian, who was a Roman emperor, who was, had a good relationship with one of the great rabbis of his time, with Rabbi Yehoshua. And they had this conversation. Hadrian tells Yehoshua, is the lamb so great to survive the 70 wolves? Certainly not. It must be that the wolves are kind to the lamb and do not seek to destroy her. So you have a lamb and you have 70 wolves surrounding the lamb and the lamb survives. It must be the lamb is not able to survive on its own. It must be that the wolves are good wolves and they're, they are being nice and protecting the one lamp. So Rabbi Yoshua responded to Hadrian, great is the shepherd who saves and guards her and drives her enemies away. As it is written, this is from Isaiah, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. In other words, what is Yehoshua telling us? Rabbi Yehoshua is telling us, it's not thanks to the wolves. It's not thanks to the other nations around the jewish people the lamb is surviving because god protects us this is in the words of rabbi yaakov emden it's the greatest miracle of all times there's no rationale to it there is no rationale can i ask another question or give me a second we, we could say anti-semitism we could say uh jews are clever you could say Jews are, are strong-willed. You could say Jews are obsessed with continuity. But at the end of the day, it's God who protects us. But before we get to questions, Amy, I just, I just, want, to, I just want to conclude this question with, with, with one comment. It's very nice to talk about Jewish continuity. And we could tap ourselves on the back and say, wow, look at that. We are part of this chain, this chain that's lasting from generation to generation. We are part of this Jewish continuity. But it's not. It, it's a. It's a privilege, but it's also responsibility. We also have to take an active role in this Jewish continuity because the sad reality is, and I don't want, we, want to make everyone sad, but this is the sad reality. The sad reality is that although the Jewish people, as a religion, as a nation, as a people, we are here and we will always be here. There is continuity. God promises the Jewish people will never be extinct. We're always going to be around as a people. The sad reality is that individual families, Jewish families, have gone extinct. Part of the, as a Jewish family. And that is, unfortunately, families who don't raise Jewish families, who don't encourage their children to, to, to be involved in Judaism, the sad reality is that, you know, we may be proud Jews. 
Our children may know that they're Jewish, and our grandchildren may not even know that. They may know my grandmother was Jewish. And, 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 and that is the true, the true reality, especially in the last 100 years, 75 years after the war in America, especially the, the, the rate of assimilation, and not just intermarriage, but assimilation as in we are assimilating with, our, with, our, with, with, the, with the culture around us, and we, we don't have that Jewish pride within us. We don't realize the importance of educating our children to be Jewish. Unfortunately, one generation, two generations, three generations later, we're not Jewish. I knew when I just moved here, I moved about 10 years ago. There was a, there was a, there was a, a Jew that I met, a wonderful, wonderful person, a very a proud Jew, traditional. And he tells me that he, he had maybe eight or nine siblings. They were from a country overseas, from, from Europe. Their family immigrated, whatever it is, 50, 60 years ago to the States and to Canada. And all of their siblings, brothers, sisters, they're all here on this side of, of the planet. Now, I think maybe one sibling married Jewish. None of them married Jewish. None of their children married Jewish. I mean, he was telling me all about his, his children, his nephews, his nieces, not one married Jewish. And already the grandchildren, don't, maybe they know that their grandparent was a Jew. That's, that, that's where it went. And why am I telling you all this? I'm usually very upbeat and very excited. But the point is that this is a family, a family of, let's say, eight Jewish children. And 70 years later, there's no Jewish family. There is no Jewish family. Many of them are not even considered Jews according to Jewish law. So although Jewish continuity is a very nice thing, hey, I'm very proud of being part of this nation, this people of Jewish people, but we also have to play an active role in making sure that our next generations will also be part of this miracle of Jewish continuity. Amy, you had a question? Yeah, I just, it's, um, why, why does God let these terrible things happen? I know he gave us free will, but um, I'd like if there's some idea of how you would answer that. That's a great question. I'm going to write that down. We'll see if we have time. Probably not tonight, but maybe next week. Why, do, why does God allow bad things to happen? Great question. Thank you, Amy. Okay, any questions on this question before we move on to the next question? Okay. Okay. Um, we're going to go now to question, I guess it'll be nine uh, on your list, on my list is number eight. Why is the Star of David a Jewish symbol? So, when I just moved to New Orleans, I met a Jew in a store, and I say, hey, I saw the Star of David. I'm like, are you Jewish? Of course. He's very proud of the Star of David. 
Until today, he's involved, he got involved with our community, and he's a thriving member. All thanks to what? Thanks to his little Star of David on his, on his necklace. So what's up with the Star of David? What makes it a Jewish symbol? What is this? Is there any significance and meaning behind the symbol? So, the interesting thing about the Star of David is, that there is no real source to the Star of David. It's almost like it's very, it's almost like a mystery. Where did it come from? Where did it begin? Right? Is it, and what's the connection to David? The Star of David. Another interesting thing is that in Hebrew we don't refer to it as the Star of David. Do we know how to say Star of David in Hebrew? David. Magain David. David is David. And Magain means a shield. The shield of David, not the star of David. In Hebrew, star will be Kochav. Kochav David means star of David. Magain David means the shield of David. Now, the word Magain David is found in our prayer book. But there's no reference to Magain David and the star of David, that 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 shape, that that the, the, the hexagram, the the six point pointed star, right? We don't have that reference to that shape and that symbol to the actual shield of David or star of David. So there were many many either uh, you know uh, historians or people came up with different explanations and different reasons for it. You can look it up. There's so much out there. We're going to try to focus on what some of the Jewish sources, what they say about the hexagram, about the Star of David. So there was a great rabbi passed away, I believe, in the 80s, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, one of the great, great rabbis of American Jewry. He was European who moved, came here after the war, and he was uh, very famous. He lived in, I mean, Flatbush or somewhere in Brooklyn. And he was asked about the Star of David. And he says he doesn't know. All he knows is that growing up or in Europe, you know, in, in the old shtetl, you know, where, where he always was, he always remembers seeing this. He saw this either on the, uh, the synagogue or in the symbol somewhere in somewhere Jewish, right? He, you know, in the cemetery, he, he saw the symbol. He doesn't see any problem with the symbol, but he also doesn't know what the significance of the symbol is. But he gives an interesting explanation. He says, perhaps this is the reason behind it. Perhaps the connection between this symbol, the hexagram, which has six corners, unlike the regular star, which has five corners, right? If you write, if you draw a, a, a Magen David, a star of David, you're talking about two, two, um, to what's it called again? <laughs> um, two triangles, yeah, two triangles, right? Which makes obviously six corners. So he says, what's what's the significance of six? The significance of six is there are six directions. There's right, left, front, back, up, and down, east, west, south, east, west, south, north, and up and down, right? So the idea is that this is kind of reminding us that God is everywhere. 
We trust in God. God is omnipresent, whether in, wherever we are, in any direction that we go, God is always with us. And perhaps that was something that was, some say was actually drawn on to the shield of David. Again, this is all theories. There's no real source for this, that perhaps David's shield, he had this star of David drawn or engraved on his shield to remind David never to worry. Don't get nervous. Don't worry. God is with you. God will protect you. You know the story where someone was always worrying. He, he, had, he had lots of debt. He, he owed a lot of people money. And he had no money to pay back. He didn't know where he was getting the money to pay back. And he was very worried. Always very anxious. Very nervous. One day he comes home. He tells his wife, I had a, had a great idea. I hired a professional warrior. Someone who's going to worry for us. I'm paying him $15 an hour. And he's going to have all my worries. I'm so relaxed already just knowing that. His wife says, but Yanko, tell me, how are you going to get the money, $15 an hour, to pay the warrior for? He says, I hired him. He's a professional. Let him worry about it. David did not worry. Because David had, perhaps, this is the theory, he had the star of David on his shield. And therefore, um, he wasn't worried. He knew that God is everywhere. By the way, once we mention the shield of David, there are some other opinions that there was actually a different symbol on the shield of David. The, the, the shield of David actually had a menorah, a menorah carved out on the shield of David. But that's, you know, obviously something interesting. Another idea with the Star of David is more of a Kabbalistic idea, is that the Star of David is made up of three triangles, sorry, two triangles, each with hat, which has three corners. And that is the idea of you taking three, uh, two concepts of three and you're kind of meshing them together, they come together. So you have the Jewish people are split into three. There's a Kohen, a Levite, and an Israelite. So the Jewish people are split into three. They are referred to as the nation of three. And you also have the Torah, which is divided into three. You have the Torah, you have the prophets, and you have the writings. So the Torah, which is divided into three, and the Jewish people are divided into three, they kind of come in sync, they come together. That's the idea of the star of David. And there are many, many other explanations, but we will suffice with that. Any questions on the star of David? Okay. Um, Winston is asking, what's the meaning of Star of David with a dot in the middle? I actually have no clue. I don't remember seeing a dot in the middle of a Star of David. Either it's a design, <laughs> nice graphic. If there is other significance, I am not aware of it. That's a good point. I don't know. Okay. We're going to go now to a question that was asked, it's not, I, I believe it's not on the list, but it's a question that was sent in. The question is, why do we eat kosher? It's the co why kosher question. And I mentioned earlier, you know, briefly with the story with the person on the bus, but that's the question, why do we eat kosher? Obviously, 
We could give a full class just on this question. There's obviously a lot to it. But let's just give the, the gist of a question. Um, just of the answer. Before we go there, uh, Lynn, do you, do you want to have a question or comment? We can't hear you. Yeah. Linda, I'm not sure if it's my computer. I can't really hear what you're saying. Want to type it? I'm sorry about that. Maybe she could chat the question. Yeah, if you have any questions, you can put them in the chat. And I guess we could just read it um, or comment. Or obviously, we could read as well. Okay, <laughs> nothing to do with Judaism. <laughs> well, uh, the evil Liz is asking about Star of David, about is it an evil eye, anything to do with Judaism? Um, this, the evil eye, and, and, and is that a question for itself, the evil eye in Judaism? Okay, I'm going to write that down to discuss the evil eye. In Judaism. Okay. Someone wrote in a question about, about kosher. Why do we keep kosher? So obviously... We'll just give a little, the, the, the point, some pointers over here. There's obviously so much uh, uh, kosher, different types of kosher, kosher meat, not mixing milk and meat, um, uh, kosher dairy, kosher wine, kosher, you know, there's so much, so much to do with kosher. Um, the general idea of kosher, why, why do we have to eat kosher? Why do we eat kosher? So um, what's the part of the... So the idea of kosher, the idea of kosher, many reasons given, diet, healthy. But ultimately, I think ultimately, there isn't a real, a real reason that answers all areas of kosher. All areas of why is this food kosher? Why is this food not kosher? Many times, kosher food is unhealthy. There's lots of very unhealthy kosher food you could get. Potato chips, is that healthy? You can get real fatty or real unhealthy food that has an OU in it. It's kosher, right? You know, it's not only kale and it's not only, uh, you know, protein. There's lots of, you know, Ashkenazi families, uh, traditional traditional Ashkenazi food has a lots, of, lots of carbs. Uh, you know, food, uh, kosher does not have to mean that it's healthy. But it's kosher. What makes it kosher? So the Torah tells us, if you follow these, these rules, kosher meat, and you don't mix milk and meat, and there's no insects, and there's no this, and there's no that, it makes it kosher. But why? What's the reason for it? So one of the explanations, which I really think that's something that we could relate to, um, the idea of kosher is that when we eat, what happens when we eat food? Food is a very important component. 
in our life, right? There's restaurants, right? We, we go on vacation, we want to see, well, where are we going to eat? What type of restaurant? What type of food are we going to have, right? We're always thinking about food. We need food. Every day we need food, right? We can't go, we can't go more than a few hours. Oh, I have to eat. My stomach is, is, is right? you need something, right? It's like, it's like oxygen. It's like, uh, it's like our, it's our chargers, right? We need, we need food. Why do we need food? Because that's what God had created us. That in order for us to have vitality, in order for us to have energy, we need to feed it. We need to feed our body. We need, we need to get food. How does food give us vitality? So we know that a human being, a person, is made up of soul and body. We have the physical body. The physical body is inanimate. What makes it alive? What makes it movable? What makes it something a person? Because there's, there, there's, there's energy. There's a soul that gives it life. What makes the heart beat? You can have two identical people lying on the table. One person is alive, one person is dead, but fully intact. One person has a soul, one person does not have a soul, right? So the soul and the body have to, have to, uh, come, to come together in unison, right? The soul becomes one with the body and is able to give the body life. So in order for the soul to give the body life, you need to eat. Because if you don't eat, the soul will leave the body. So when we, when we eat, two things are happening. We are feeding the body, we're giving energy to the body, and we are also giving energy to our soul. And therefore, we have to eat, as a Jew, we have to eat the right food. Because we know our bodies. You go to a nutritionist and they tell you exactly what is healthy for your body. This body, this person needs this diet. This person, you need that diet. You're diabetic, you need this diet. You have uh, this issue, you need that diet. We know food, we know the body, and we know what is a good match. God knows our souls. And he knows the energy, the soul of the food. So God tells us, for you, you have to eat this food. This is good for you. This food is not good for you. Why? We don't know why. But we do know that the doctor of our soul which the food feeds, the food gives energy to, tells us which food is kosher, which food is not kosher. So that is just a thought. There's so much to, more to it. Just a little thought of why kosher, because certain foods are good for our soul, are healthy for our soul, and certain foods are unhealthy for our soul. Certain foods are healthy for our soul on certain days of the year. And certain foods are, are, are unhealthy for our soul, on certain days of the year. So, so for example, a loaf of bread, if it's kosher, it's healthy for our soul. But on Pesach, on Passover, it's very unhealthy for our soul to eat that same loaf of bread. Or any food is unhealthy for our soul on Yom Kippur. Oily donuts are very healthy for our soul on Hanukkah. But, uh, right, maybe for the rest of the year it's not. But the point is, it's really about God knowing two points first of all food energizes our body and our soul and therefore we know our body god knows our soul and therefore we need food that also is healthy for our soul so that is the why kosher question any questions on that okay we're going to go on to the next question, and this was a question that also came in 
<clears throat> before the class. Question 10 or 9. Why does a mikvah purify? And we'll go to the next question as well. Why do people require purification? So just to give a, a little background to what a mikvah is, and what does it mean, purification? Um, the mikvah is a ritual bath, a ritual pool. It's not like a very large pool, but it's a small, I don't know, maybe six by six, eight by eight, little uh, pool of water that uh, every Jewish community is meant to have. Here in New Orleans, we have a mikvah at Chabad Uptown. There is a, a, a beautiful, beautiful, stunning, actually, uh, mikvah. And the mikvah is a ritual bath. It has to have specific waters uh, that were natural water that kind of flow directly when it rains into the pool. And um, there are two, two pools, actually. One pool of the water, the rain water. And then there is another pool of fresh water that is filtered and it's, you know, it's clean. It gets changed every, you know, so often. And that is kissing. There's like a hole in between the two pools of water. So the, 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 the clean uh, faucet water is always touching the pool of the rainwater. Hence the entire, you know, both of the pools have a, um, uh, are considered a, a kosher mikvah. And we use this to purify ourselves. When do we use this? So the, the two perhaps most important times to use a mikvah, a kosher mikvah, is a convert. When they convert to Judaism, one of the steps of conversion is they must use the mikvah. They must dunk their entire body into a mikvah. That is one uh, use of a mikvah. And perhaps more commonly used, the mikvah is used for women when they go through their menstrual cycle, the monthly cycle or however often, after they go through that cycle, they have to use the mikvah before they're able to live again with their husbands, have relationship with their husbands. So they use the mikvah and after that, they are, they are um, pure, you could say, um, until obviously the next time they go through the menstrual cycle. So this is the use of a mikvah. Like I said, communities have mikvahs um, here in New Orleans, we have a mikvah, and sometimes some communities have numerous mikvahs, right? Large communities, there are many women using it every night, so they have maybe a few mikvahs in every neighborhood um, to be used. So the question is twofold. The question is, how does a mikvah purify? That's A. And B, why do women have to use a mikvah? Why are they considered impure? And they, and, and they need to use the mikvah to purify themselves. By the way, in addition to women and converts, there are many people who use mikvah for other reasons, for extra purification. Men also use a mikvah. Actually, here in New Orleans, there are two mikvahs. There's a women's mikvah, and then there's a men's mikvah. And men use the mikvah however often. They use it every day. Some people use it every morning. Some use it once a week, once a month, before Yom Kippur, before a holiday, the day of their wedding, or any special occasion be able to go and use the mikvah as an extra purification. So let's start with the first question. How does this work? How does a mikvah purify? Now today, 
we have mikvahs which are state of the art. They're clean, water, hot, you know, hot water, warm water. It's it's very comfortable. It's very cleansing. But for it to be a kosher mikvah, it doesn't have to be a clean water. As long as the water is kosher water, it's rainwater, it's a kosher mikvah, and it purifies. Because the mikvah purifying is not a physical purity. It's not a physical cleansing. I can take a shower with soap and shampoo, soap and, shampoo and I'll be more clean physically. Mikvah is not there to physically clean up, clean us. Mikvah is there to spiritually purify us. So how does it work? So numerous explanations given to this concept of dunking in the mikvah. So our whole body goes underwater. And then we emerge purified. So one explanation given is when the person goes underwater, they're like a fetus in a womb, in their mother's womb. They are in the sack. They are in, they're, they're in the, 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 the fluid. And the moment they emerge, they go out, come out of the mikvah. It's like birth. Oh, I'm a new person. I was just born. I was born anew, right? So I'm pure. I'm pure. My past is behind me. I'm a new person. Hence, I'm a pure person. That's one explanation. Another explanation is a similar idea, is that we just read a few weeks ago in Genesis when God created the world. Originally, there's water, water basically covering the entire space. There's only water. And then God separated the waters, heavens and the earth, and he separated the earth with dry land and water, right? But originally it was all water. And that's the idea. We go into water. We surround ourselves with water. It's like the beginning of creation. So it's not only I am being born, but it's like the world is being born anew. So it's, like, it's like everything is fresh. Same concept. The concept is that it's like a new beginning. And therefore, it purifies. There's a third explanation, more of a, a Kabbalistic explanation. And that is that the idea of water represents the worlds, the realities of, 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 of where godliness is so revealed and tangible. The, we don't feel the, the, the creatures of, of, um, of the water don't feel independent of their source of, of life. They don't feel independent of, of the water. They know that they need the water to live. They can't live without water. Us on dry land, we feel like I'm, I'm a person for myself. I don't need the land. I don't need, you know, I, I can live on my own. But the fish always recognizes that they need the water. So too, the idea of water represents a reality where we all recognize that we aren't independent of God. We are really reliable, relying on God for our source of life. And that's the idea when we dunk in a mikvah, when we when we, when we, when we, when we uh, dip in the mikvah, in the waters of the mikvah, we are kind of, we, we, are, we, are, we are putting ourselves into, this, immersing ourselves into this reality. We are, it's full of water. We, we, we're tapping into this reality where God is so real that we don't feel independent of God. And that itself, that realization itself is purifying. So that's why the mikvah 
purifier. So these are different explanations to the concept. Obviously, the answer, I mean, obviously God tells us in the Torah that you should go into water. If you, if you dip in water, it purifies. So the, the concept is not man-made. The concept is divine. The Torah tells us that mikvah purifies, but these are some of the explanations given to the reason behind the idea of a mikvah. So we would say water represents life. Water represents the birth, the beginning of life. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, to, to answer the second half of the question of, well, well, why do we even need it? Why do, why are we considered impure and therefore the mikvah purifies us? So specifically talking about women, we know that women, after they have a baby, they are considered impure and they are not allowed to, I mean, the only practical ramification is that they're not allowed to be living, having relations, relations with their husband until they use the mikvah. And the same is true with their menstrual cycle, that after they are cleaned for seven days, they have to use the mikvah before they are together with their spouse. Why? What's the problem? Why are they considered unclean? Why are they considered impure? So, one of the explanations given is that what happens at birth? A child is born. A Jewish child is born. It's the happiest time. It's a beautiful thing. We, we, all, we, all, we all raise our glasses. Mazel tov. We're all excited. We're dancing. We're celebrating. We're throwing a party. Right? It's, it's a happy celebration. It's a happy time for everyone. It's also a holy time. The mitzvah, another Jew, another person, part of the family, another person who's going to serve God. They have a mission in life, right? We've spoken about this many times. I'm no doctor of Kabbalah, but one thing they tell us is as follows. That there is positive energy, there's a godly energy, and then there is negative energy. If I have a cup filled to its brim, filled to the top, can I fill it up with anything else? No, it's full. It's full of coffee. It's full of wine. It's full of whatever, right? It's full of water. It's full. There's no space for anything else. When I fill up a vessel with godly energy, it's filled. There's no space. There's no place. There's no room for anything other than God. Anything other than the godly energy. As soon as there's a little void, as soon as there's a void, then that's when the negative energy takes hold. And that's why we find many in many areas of Judaism that sometimes right after the height of a positive experience, we have the idea of getting rid of a negative energy. One of the examples of this is waking up in the morning. We woke up in the morning. Great. It's beautiful. Gotta thank God. Thank you, Hashem, for returning my soul within me. Right? It's a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, not everyone wakes up. Right? We woke up. Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, God, for giving me life. I'm about to start my day. I'm going to have a very productive day. It's a beautiful thing. It's a divine thing, seemingly. Right? I'm here to serve God. But at the same time, we're supposed to wash our hands in the morning. Why? 
because there's a negative energy on our hands. What happened? A negative for what? The same idea that when we when we sleep, some of our neshama, some of our soul leaves our body, and when it leaves, the positive, the divine soul leaves. Negative energy takes hold of our body, and the same is true with a woman as well. Going through the menstrual cycle, every time there's a menstrual cycle, there is a potential of a life, a potential of a human being, a, t- a potential of, of conceiving, and that potential did not play out in reality. So that alone is already a little void of a godly energy. And because of that, there's a little of a, a little negative energy, an impure energy that takes hold, and therefore we have to use the mikvah to purify ourselves. Lynn, does that make sense? Okay. Any questions about the mikvah or this topic before we move on? Want to put something in the comments? You can put something in the comments, in the, in the chat. Whoa. So in, in New Orleans, there's a community mikvah? So in New Orleans, I'm going to read this in a second. In New Orleans, there are, there's currently two mikvahs. There is one mikvah which is um, open to the community, I guess. It's a women's mikvah, and it's run by Chabad Uptown on Ferret Street. It's right behind their, um, their the Chabad house. It's obviously a little bit of a private area because, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a private thing to do. So you make an appointment, and you, uh, you, you, you can go there. Um, and that is mainly for women who want to use, who need to use a mikvah on, on a regular basis. There's also another mikvah, which is a men's mikvah, uh, which a lot of men use all the time. And we also, maybe we'll get to one of the questions, we also, when we buy new dishes, we also uh, put the dishes in the mikvah. We kind of dip the dishes into the mikvah. So, so the men's mikvah is used for dishes as well. So that is the two mikvahs uh, currently here in New Orleans. And you want more information? We'll give you more information about the mikvah and about use of the mikvah. Um, even someone, a woman who is not who already past menopause, is not, but it's important to use the mikvah at least once because then you kind of take away that impurity and then for the rest of life, for many, many years to come in good health, you're, you're able to, um, you know, you're ready after that, that point of using the mikvah. So uh, that's something that we could uh, discuss mainly with um, one of the, the, the women of Chabad, or I'm always happy to discuss this with anyone who is interested. Um, see, someone posted a long article from a website talking about some of the details of what makes a, and what, what makes a, Mikvah kosher, you can read it over here with different, different measurements, etc. What type of water to be used could be read it. Someone posted here from uh, from online. Okay, any other questions about mikvah? Okay, we're well, we just do another few minutes. Um,
<clears throat> let's talk about, let's talk 13 or 14, and hopefully we'll also do 15 and 16 if we have time. So we're going to start with why do traditional synagogues have separate seating for men and women? We'll discuss that question. And then if we have time, we will also discuss the question, why does the Bible call for animal sacrifices? Okay. <clears throat> okay, so the question about men and women sitting separately in a synagogue, I'm sure you've been to synagogue, you've seen a traditional synagogue has men and women sitting separately. Maybe if I could take my camera quickly and turn it around because I'm sitting here in the synagogue. And you can see in our lovely synagogue, we have what we call a mechitza, that wooden uh, partition between the, down the middle where the men sit with the men and the women sit with the women. And the question is, why? It's the big why question. Why is this needed? I go to my other synagogue, I go to my reform temple, I go to my conservative temple, and we don't have that. We're living in the 21st century why are we still having men and women sit separately in the synagogue? Okay, I'm gonna tell you the reason, but you can't repeat, you can't repeat this, this reason. This is the real reason, okay? You ready? What happens during services? The rabbi gives a sermon. What happens when the rabbi gives a sermon? This is just between me and you. What happens when the rabbi gives a sermon? Let's be honest. The honest truth is we fall asleep. We fall asleep. No, we don't fall asleep. Not me. I'm talking about that rabbi, the other, <laughs> other rabbi. Just as an aside, there's one time someone sitting in the front row, the rabbi is giving a sermon and he's sleeping, but not, not, only, not only is he sleeping, but he's also snoring. So the president of the synagogue comes over to him and says, Josh, excuse me, you're snoring. The rabbi's talking, you're snoring. He says, leave me alone. I paid my membership. I've been a member of the synagogue for 25 years. Leave me alone. I have the right to snore while, uh, while the rabbi speaks. The president says, yes, I understand that. But you're waking everyone else up. Yep. Okay, but here's, here's the thing. So what happens, the rabbi gives a sermon and everyone sleeps. That's the truth. We can't, if we, if we had men and women sitting together, we can't have men and women sleeping together in the synagogue. But that's, that's obviously um, not a, a serious thing. But the point is like this. What is the reason, what is the true reason why men and women sit separately in the synagogue? So truthfully, historically, other religions, whether mosques or churches, also had a separate seating. It was a given. You, 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 you socialize together, men socialize with men in a formal setting, men socialize with men, and women socialize with women. But obviously, already in the mid-18th century, that kind of changed. The churches started um, implementing family seating, and they felt that this was very important 
to show how we, we, we encourage family, uh, building families, family life. So they really changed it. And obviously that also changed with in Judaism as well. Many of the more reform and uh, um, uh, conservative uh, communities also adopted that idea of family seating in synagogues. But the truth is, in traditional synagogues, in Orthodox synagogues, we still have separate seating. What's the reason for this? First of all, Judaism never really uh, suffered a family crisis that we have to encourage family seating. Because in Judaism, those who are living a Jewish life, they all know that Judaism isn't just about going to synagogue. They know Judaism is our life. It's our home. Right? There are many families, many women who don't always go to synagogue because they're just busy at home, whether it is Shabbat, whether having guests, whether it's with their family, kosher, the mezuzah. I mean, the, the, the home is the epicenter of their Judaism. So they never really felt, oh, we want to encourage family life. Let's have family seating in the synagogue because Judaism was so real and so so much felt at home so it wasn't needed it wasn't needed unfortunately the more or the the the, the less we had jewish homes the, the, the more we were just you know dropping the judaism in our house the more we felt hey at least let's have a jewish uh, family experience at the synagogue but the reason why it was not adopted in traditional synagogues is because we really have to understand why are we coming to a synagogue? Why are we coming to pray? What's the purpose of it all? Many people see synagogue as a, a time to socialize in a Jewish setting. Let's go together, we'll sit together, we'll see our friends, we'll schmooze, we'll talk, we'll also pray, we'll hear a good sermon, it'll be a nice experience. Synagogue is so much more than that. Synagogue, the sanctuary, Prayer, the service, is a time to communicate with God. It's a time to pray. It's a time to focus. It's a time to meditate. It's a time to have the proper intentions, to be fully emotionally, mentally concentrated on what we are doing, on what we are saying. And that's why, not only about men and women sitting separately, but there are many different laws in, 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 in regards to a synagogue to make sure that we are able to focus on our prayer. So, for example, you know that in the synagogue, we're not supposed to have any design or, or a lot of or, or artwork or pictures of people hanging in the sanctuary. It's a beautiful thing. Wow. Look at this artwork. Look at that portrait. Or look at that. We don't have it in the synagogue, in the sanctuary of a synagogue. Why? Because it's distracting. If there are windows in a synagogue, ideally the window should be above eye level. We shouldn't be looking outside during services. When we pray, we're supposed to look down into the prayer book or close our eyes. We're not supposed to pray in front of a mirror. It's distracting. If someone is hungry, they are supposed to first eat and then pray because we want to make sure they're able to focus 
on their prayer. So put this idea of men sitting with men and women sitting with women in this context. It's in the context of we have to be able to do what we could to focus, to concentrate on our prayers. We know, and God knows, human tendencies and human nature. That when men and women are sitting together, in addition to thinking about God and everything else, we are also thinking about the other people in the room. That's just human nature. We have to be honest with ourselves. That is just human nature. And it's distracting. It could be distracting. Not distracting for everyone. It's distracting for most people. We have to be honest with ourselves. There's someone in here, here in our community, a woman who has been here for many years. And she told me that she once had a bar mitzvah or something. She went to a different synagogue that didn't, that didn't have a mechitza, didn't have a uh, barrier separating the, the two uh, sections of the synagogue. And she told me at first she felt, oh, it's nice to kind of be with everyone. She told me she couldn't pray. The entire prayer, she was looking here, looking at him, winking to this person, winking to that person. It was a different type of prayer. A different type of prayer. So this is what the Torah says. There are many, the Torah obviously uh, 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 sanctifies and, and, and uh, uh, obviously uh, it's precious, this relationship between men and women. It's a beautiful thing, whether in marriage, or a relationship between family. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But there's a time and place for everything. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. This is only an example. We're not comparing, but this is only an example. How beautiful is it when you see a parent hugging or kissing a child? It's a beautiful thing. Showing that love and affection, the physical affection to a child. Young child, you come home from school, you grab them and you kisses and hugs and hugs, right? A mother, a father to a child. Of course, it's a beautiful thing. The Torah says that a parent should not kiss a child, their own child, in a sanctuary. Why? It's a beautiful thing, but not in the sanctuary, because in the sanctuary, we're focusing on God. This is just an example of something which is cherished, which is precious, which is encouraged in Judaism, but not in a sanctuary. There's a time and place for everything. The same is true with prayer itself. Women sit with the women and the men sit with the men. Unfortunately, in ancient, like in the, the old ancient synagogues, and I'm saying this unfortunately because I truly feel it's unfortunate, that sometimes the women's section wasn't always as nice as the men's section. It was on a balcony or was in the back of the synagogue. They didn't really, they weren't, they didn't feel part of the, of the services. That's a problem. That's why today we really try to kind of have women's sections also very welcoming, etc. But that is the idea behind this separation. Any questions on that before we go to our last question? Okay. So we will go to question 16. Why does the Bible call for animal sacrifices? And um, next week we will discuss many of the other questions that came in that are not even on this list. So animal sacrifices. Big question. We get this quite often. What is this? What is this? 
the Torah is talking about animal sacrifices? Is this not cruel? How do we understand this? The Torah itself tells us we got to be kind, got to be caring, got to be loving. What's this idea of, of animal sacrifices? And we obviously know the Torah is very clear. Just open a book of Leviticus. There's so many different types of animal offerings and sacrifices that we bring. Now, just to clarify, there's a misunderstanding when we, for, by many when we say animal sacrifices. And that is that in the Torah, when we say animal sacrifice, we're not taking a, an alive animal and putting it on the altar, you know, tying it up, putting it on the altar and burning it alive. That is cruel and that is the Torah does not allow that. Animal sacrifice is basically taking an animal which was already killed, which was already slaughtered, and taking the meat or certain bones or fats from the animal and basically roasting it on the altar. In other words, it's basically a barbecue. Most sacrifices, most of the meat was actually eaten by people, either by the Kohen, the priest who brought it in the temple, or by the person who brought the sacrifices. I can bring a sacrifice, and then I take it home. I eat the meat, or I eat it in the temple, or I eat it in Jerusalem, right? It's a way of eating meat in the same time, thanking God or, or atonement for our sins, or whatever the reasons, the cause for bringing the sacrifices. So that's just to clarify that it sounds whoa like what's going on over here we're taking animals and we're burning them on the altar what we're really doing is we're taking meat and putting it on the barbecue that's what it is we're taking meat from you you go to today we go to the grocery we go to the supermarket we buy packaged meat but back in the day what did our grandparents do when they wanted meat they they bought an animal they bought their sheep they bought their cow they bought their chicken and they brought it then they uh, either they killed it or they brought it to a shochet they slaughter it to do it for them and, uh, and they ate it, right? So that is what was done in the basin, in the temple as well. So that is just to put that on the side, just to clarify. Now, so the, so the animals were slaughtered kosher in the temple, like any other animal today is done. I mean, obviously we don't, we don't, uh, we don't uh, highlight it. We don't, you know, excited, but at the end of the day, we eat meat and it's, done, it's slaughtered in a kosher manner. That was, that's the same way it was done. If someone walked into the temple, randomly not knowing what's going on you know what they will see they would see basically a slaughterhouse they would see the same we walk into a meat plant today in iowa or in whatever in arizona right it's just a bunch of cows or sheep or goat or veal whatever it is and it's just being slaughtered and processed that that is what was happening in the temple every day there were many sacrifices being bought being brought and many of the meat was Eaten, many of the, eat, the, the meat was roasted on the on the temple on the on the altar. That is what was the idea of animal sacrifice. Now, before we get to why, we're just clarifying what it isn't. So it's not taking a live animal and roasting it on the altar. That's not what it is. Now, <clears throat> you also have to preface that in the Torah, the Torah allows 
humans to eat meat. There are many Jewish people who are vegetarians or vegans, and they don't eat meat. And that's fine. That's okay. You don't have to eat meat. But the Torah definitely tells us clearly in the Torah that we are allowed, humans are allowed to eat meat, meat of animals, meat of fowl. In fact, we just read in the Torah last week in the Parsha of Noah, after the flood, God told Noah, the world is there for you. Not just vegetation, but also animal life. So if you need it for your, uh, for your sake, for your, for your needs, you are allowed to use it. Whether you want to use it to consume, you want to use it for leather, you want to use it for, for wool, you want to use it for eggs, you want to use it for milk, whatever you want to use it for. This is what the Torah believes that this is allowed. So therefore, if for whatever reason the Torah says that bringing an animal sacrifice will benefit the human being, it is allowed. It is allowed. So that is just to kind of clarify a few things. But the big question really is why? Well, why should we bring an animal sacrifice? How does that work? How do I get atonement through bringing an animal sacrifice? So again, many explanations given. Some explanations say, you know what? This is was this was just the the this is what was the custom at the time. At the time, this was a common thing. People brought sacrifices. That was the way they served other religions. So God says, do the same thing for me. That's one explanation. But there's a lot of a deeper explanation. And one of the explanations given is that we all have within us a little animal. We have a what we call an animal soul, which is the soul within us, which just wants to be, just be me, just, just feel good, be lazy, self-gratification, very selfish. The selfish instinct that we have as human beings, part of our nature. The part of us that is the drive for physical pleasure, for eating, for drinking, for any other pleasure, just feel good. It's not our mind, it's our heart. It's how we feel. It's not what we know is right, but it's what feels good. That's our animal soul. And thanks to our animal soul, we sometimes slip, we sin, we do the wrong thing. Why? Because it feels good. I know I shouldn't do this, but I did it anyways. Why? Because I slipped, because I have an animal soul. So what do we have to do? We have to slaughter our animal soul. We have to get rid of our animal soul. And that is expressed through the idea of animal sacrifice. Because when we do things physically, it has an effect on us internally as well. If we're not happy and we start dancing, we will become happy. We will feel, we will get into the mood. If you act a certain way, our feelings follow our actions. If you act a certain way, you'll start feeling that way. If you act as if you love your spouse, you will eventually love them. Right? So um, through going through the motions of bringing an animal as an offering, it also has an impact internally to also bring our own animalistic soul as an offering, meaning getting rid of it. And more than getting rid of, getting rid of it, actually 
elevating it, transforming it to godliness. So that is a little thought, a little idea of the idea of, of animal sacrifice. Um, we are going to suffice with this for tonight. And we have many, many more questions that we are going to discuss next week. Some of the questions that came in that are not in the, uh, on the list are talking about our barsheret, talking about why Jewish men have beers and uh, payas. We talk about um, the different holidays, the Jewish holidays, why certain ones we do like you know, drive or sometimes, sometimes we don't drive. Um, talking about why a bris is on the eighth day, why do we sometimes name our children after our parents? These are some of the questions that came in that are not part of the 50 questions. And also we will try to, re to, to discuss the other questions from the 50 questions that were not discussed tonight. So that is tonight. If you have any questions or comments on what we said tonight, uh, I'm happy to discuss. I see someone had a comment. Cece, how does that make it a sacrifice? Don't you need blood to sacrifice? Um, yeah, if you, if, you bring, if you bring the animal already slaughtered and there's no blood i mean does isn't doesn't it have to be like a blood sacrifice so in in the torah the sacrifices were actually slaughtered in the temple you didn't bring a packaged uh piece of roast to the temple you brought the animal okay you brought the animal and in the temple it was slaughtered you know if you go to israel and uh, i can put in a plug for our trip we're going in march they just reopen Israel just opened reopen the doors for, for, for tours. So uh, God willing, we'll go march to, to Israel. Um, if you go to Jerusalem with excavations over there, they actually found the marketplaces, the, like the street before, right, right near the temple, was a marketplace where they sold animals because people would come through from, from, from around Israel and even from the diaspora in order to bring a sacrifice. So they had to buy the animal in Jerusalem and bring it to the temple. So they would actually slaughter it in the temple and then they would take the blood. They had special type of cups because one of the things the Torah says is that you're not allowed to uh, allow the blood to, to congeal, to dry up. And I guess they were concerned that throughout, you know, if you take a cup and you fill up some blood, you someone might put it down somewhere and forget about it. And then we come back later and say, hey, it's already congealed, right? So they had like, the, what are they called? Something you have in the offices where you have those cups that have, a, a, don't, have a, don't have a base. You can't put it down. Those little cups that have the point on the bottom where, you know, the, the paper cups, they have something in machines like in mm -hmm. parks. They don't want people to, to, to either way. So they had a, a cup like that where you weren't able to put it down. So they, were, they, they, they would catch the blood into the cup and then they would sprinkle the blood on the altar. That's one of the one of the parts of the service of the sacrifice. So that's just one stage of the sacrifice. There are a lot of different stages. You, if you, read, you just read Leviticus. You see all the different stages, different type of offerings, different type of things you split through. How many times do you sprinkle the blood? At which corner of the altar do you sprinkle the blood? Everything is ordained in the, in the Torah. There isn't really a lot of reasons given for all the details of well, why this and why that for this specific this specific offering, but this is the Torah tells us, and this is this was this was real Jewish life before the temple was destroyed. Today we're looking at it, and says, really, 
That's like so ancient. But at the time, this is this was the main this is the main synagogue. This was the central synagogue. And this is what was going on at the synagogue. So this is obviously an important part of our of our religion. So it's important to kind of have a better understanding of, of, of all of this. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, I'll leave you with this. Um, if you have not yet signed up and you'd like to join us in two weeks, because next week we're going to do the, the second half of this course, the Jewish course of why. In two weeks, Sunday on the 26th, we are having uh, the beginning of our four-week course of uh, outsmarting anti-Semitism. It's a refreshing new approach to this whole topic. It's not what you heard before. It's very, very different. And it's something very, uh, I think, unique. Like as always, the first class is always free, and we'll have a nice, we'll have a nice dinner. We'll have a lot of traditional, traditional Jewish foods, and um, we encourage you to come. Even if you're not going to sign up for the rest, we encourage you to come. But we'll have it virtually as well. But I really would like to have in person as well. If you'd like to come on Tuesday evening to enjoy the dinner, to socialize a little bit, so we could uh, see you in person. So it's always nice to see you in person. So that's that, and hope to see you. Hope you're all doing well, and we'll see you next week.